This is The Guardian. Just a warning, some of the language in this podcast may not be suitable for younger ears. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled up on the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. Hello people, I am just making birds eye potato waffles in the toaster uh, to serve with tinned macaroni cheese. Lunch of dreams today. I'm just uh, about to go and sit down and chat with Rafe Spall. I'm really excited about this one. Rafe is one of those British actors that um, once you start looking into it, he seems to have had his face in everything. You might know him from The Big Short, Life of Pi, Hot Fuzz, I Give It a Year. Rafe has uh, got an amazing energy on screen, no matter what he's doing, including in his TV show, Trying, which is currently on its second season on Apple TV. From what I know, uh, he's a lot of fun, but also uh, a pretty sensitive soul. And I feel so lucky to get to hang out with him this afternoon. Okay, I think these waffles need another go in the toaster. Rafe Spall, welcome to Comfort Eating. I've got two drink options for you today. Now, I know that you're a fan of both of them. You can have a Diet Coke Mm. or you can have a martini. Mm. Now, I'm wafting the martini in front of you, right? Mm. I do have the accoutrements. What kind of a person would I be if I chose a Diet Coke over a martini? I mean, really. A very silly person. Yeah, a very silly person. And I'm not prepared to be silly. So give me a martini, please. I'll go olive and not twist, please. Okay, so. Yeah. I think I've said before that my favourite feeling in the world is being at a table with people that you love, two martinis down, deciding what to order. That to me is 
as good as the human experience can get. Now, if I was to ask for a martini, I'd ask for a vodka martini very dry with olives. There's a really posh London hotel where they fill it exactly as I filled it here, too full. And then you have to do the slurp. The slurp with no hands off the table. I almost daren't put the olive in because I feel as if I'm going to... It might push it over. Do you want to do a slurp no, first? No, go on, let's see if it works. Perfect. It's, it's taken it up to the meniscus, I so, think that's the word. It's a good it, word. Yeah, it's yeah. a good word. That's really good. It is a good That's martini. really good. That's got a nice vermouth in it. Tell me about that second martini moment when you're sitting with friends. Well, it's just the best. It's just like... Because you've sat down and it's always exciting. It's still my favourite thing to do is going out for dinner with people and you sit down, you order your first martini and I'd also order a beer straight away. Oof. So bring me the beer whilst I'm waiting for the martini. Because a martini is going to take, especially if someone's ordered like something daft like a mojito, you're going to be there for 10 minutes whilst you're waiting for your martini <laughs> and someone's making like it's 2011 and ordered a, mart- and ordered a mojito. Uh, so I'll order a beer straight away. I'll have that. That'll go down in two sips, Grace, the first martini. I'll have another one straight away, probably by the time they've handed everyone else's drinks out. And then I will uh, think about a third, which I'll usually succumb to the uh, temptation to have a third and I'll go for one. Three martinis. Yeah. I think that that's the danger zone because the first one's like, yeah. You know, that's adrenaline. The second one, that's when you kind of feel like you can conquer the world. That's when you start making plans with people. Yeah, exactly. To open a beach bar or something like that. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. then the third one, yeah. that's when you're going to get banned from somewhere. You are, yeah. You're going to start telling people what you really think about them. <laughs> so in this podcast, yeah. guests bring me a snack and it's something that they eat when they're home alone that they find really comforting. Tell me what you've brought for me today. Grace, I've brought you a, a very simple cheese and pickle sandwich. Perfect. Yeah. Absolutely with, perfect. With salt and vinegar crisps. I just, I think it's the best. It's uniquely English as well, isn't it? A cheese and pickle sandwich. Where is it? it, it it's down here. It, it's um, Branston, obviously. Branston pickle. And this is, this is quite, quite weird. Now, what I'm, yeah, look, the butter's nice and soft as well. Because that's the worst. There's nothing worse it's than just, hard it's like butter the the world. that tears the bread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the end of the world. Because you need it all to be intact. And yeah, yeah. you have put a load of grated cheese in there, like a lot. Liberal. And now you're putting a thick yeah, yeah. carpet, <laughs> a carpet of Branston pickle. What's the maturity Ch- of the cheese, by the way? It's a cathedral city, mature. Oof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah which is like the go-to fridge cheese. And then the cheese is grated, which I think is specific. You have to have it grated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I have learned with sandwiches is that in New York, when they're making sandwiches, they always say no dry bites. So you have to work out how to get the whole thing moist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And really it's like sticking loads of mayo, sweet chili sauce, mustards just to moisten just to make it moist so with the grated cheese i would stick mayo through the grit and but that would mean i would put the grated cheese into a bowl and put some kind of Mix salad it. cream oh, really? or mayo through it wow and then a lot more salt and pepper wow let me get the crisps hang on so i've parted the seas of the sandwich oh and now God. i'm putting a sort of a red sea crisps in the middle i'm gonna eat well, i hope it's not dry now it's good. It's all right, isn't it? It's good. 
Tell me why and when you would eat this. I've been eating this since I was a kid. Do you know what I think it is? It's when you're able to first make stuff as a kid. Mm. It's a, one of the first things you make by yourself to feed yourself is a toast or a sandwich. And so I've been making cheese and pickle sandwiches since I was 10 probably. So good. How about them crisps? As salt and vinegar crisps go, they're extremely good, right? What I would say about these crisps, for salt and vinegar, there has to be that amount of acid, yeah, that yeah. amount of, they have to be so punchy yeah. that you start to fear for the top of your yeah, mouth. Yeah, exactly. If a crisp is really good, it's worth the mouth ulcer. Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's so true. But crisps and a sandwich, it's just fantastic. I'd love to have it on my own watching Shite TV. That, to me, is my happy place. What's your happy place with Shite TV? Um, don't tell the bride. <gasps> <laughs> to, to me, I think it's, it is I like laugh out loud brilliance. Yeah. It's such a fantastic show. Like I, it's on Netflix now. And I'll sit there. I can do five episodes in a row easy eating a cheese and pickle sandwich. I'm going to talk about your show, Trying, which I started thinking that it was going to be a quite wholesome, mm. maybe even a little bit twee yeah. show about a couple trying to have a baby yeah. and you know problems and quite issue-led. Within the first minute of the first episode, I did see you having sex on a bus. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think it sets its stall out from that moment yeah, on. I, th I think so too. And we filmed on an actual bus, um, a, a, a double-decker bus going through Islington at night. And obviously, because we're shooting it, the inside of the bus was incredibly lit. Mm -hmm. And like driving past like members of the public, looking up and going, is that? <laughs> no, <it can't. laughs> that can't be that bloke, that actor having sex with someone on a bus. That would be ridiculous. I should say, for anybody listening, it isn't just a show where people have sex on buses. No. The whole point of someone having sex on a bus is that uh, it's about trying to conceive. Mm -hmm. Kind of the tyranny of trying to conceive where all the fun goes out of sex because mm -hmm. there's like a, you know, a two hour window, which, you know, that's what leads to happen. They're on this bus and they try to, you know, they try to do it then. Why did you want to do that script? It's the sort of thing I like to watch. Yeah. Because it's, uh, it, it's funny and um, about things. And uh, I don't really want to do things anymore that, haven't got some elements of humour in them. Because that it, was one of my questions. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I've never seen you so kind of in your element doing comedy. Yeah, yeah, because it, it's reflective of my experience of life in a sense is that whenever I find things difficult, humour is a fallback. Yeah. It, and I think that's very human. The acting world was part of your childhood. Uh, you grew up in Forest Hill in South East London with your dad, actor, Timothy Spall, your mum, Shane, and your two sisters, Mercedes and Pascal. When I was a little girl, when I was nine years old, Alfreda Zainpet was just part of, it was one of the biggest television parts of my life. So I feel like I've known yeah. your dad, like all of my life. Mm. For anyone that doesn't know Alfreda Zainpet, it's about uh, basically about a load of builders in Germany. Yeah, exactly. And your father played Barry. Barry, yeah. He, he played this kind of slightly neurotic man mm. so well that for, I think that for millions and millions of people across the country, they couldn't believe that he was a classically trained actor. Yeah, exactly. I think they thought that Barry 
was a real person who they dragged in off the street. People still say to me now, what part of Birmingham is your dad from? Yes. Well, Battersea. <laughs> exactly. um, they still do now. And it's still very much part of people's consciousness is that show. What was life like in this ball house back then? It was a mix of ordinary and exotic. So I went to state school and my mum and dad moved to Forest Hill on Oak Park in the early 80s when it, it was just simply affordable. And it, it all felt quite ordinary, but like... John Sessions was one of my dad's best friends and Jane Horrocks and Francis Barber. Um, and because they they had kids young, my mum and dad, my dad was 26, he had 27, he had three. They didn't go out a lot, right? Because they had young kids. So they would have people to our house and we would have these Sunday lunches that people that I just mentioned would come that would go on till four in the morning <laughs> and people dancing to Prince and Cameo. And So apart from uh, these fantastic all-night Sunday lunches. Yeah. What comfort foods did you and the family eat together? Indian food, the national dish of England, was always a massive fixture in my life. Friday ah. night was Indian night, yeah. yeah. And I still and I still order the same thing that I did when I was 12 years old. Right, it what's your order? Quite weird. Some people, Grace, had never heard of a chicken shashlik. Oh, look, actually, hang on. So chicken, a chicken shashnik, that must be a very specific A chicken shashnik is, is a form of tandoori. It's cooked in a tandoori. Right. It's like a big chicken ticker. So it's large bits of tandoori chicken, but cooked on a, um, what do you call it? A on kebab a, stick, on a, skewer, on a skewer, I think, with peppers and onions. Yeah, and tomatoes and ghee, because you get a lovely juice off it. But it's so, not got a sauce. It's the ghee and the chicken and the, the vegetables give you this beautiful sauce. So I'd get chana masala. So chickpeas. Chickpeas. Taka dal. Uh, sarg paneer. I love a sarg paneer. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a, a, a brindle bhaji. Okra, okra, which isn't to everyone's taste. Then I'd get, um, well, if I was going to be my 14-year-old self here, I'd get a keema naan. The keema's the mince. Yeah. So it's Friday night. Do you have this delivered? Yeah, always delivered. And this yeah. is what and we're talking about back when your family yeah, yeah, yeah. all lived together. So it's delivered. There's a ring on the doorbell. Yeah. Do you lay it out on a table? It would be on the front room floor. Wow. On newspaper. Okay. On newspaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you all sit, do you all sit around? Do you share or do you get a bit territorial? No, you share. Right. It's always really weird when I find now grown-ups when you, you order Indian and they go, I'll have a corman and they pour the whole thing on their plate. That's just what weird. is wrong with you? It's it, it it says a lot about somebody it does. when they can't share their bits. They just go, they get a whole rice and a whole korma and put it on their plate. Where, where's the fun in that? I imagine they don't like sex. Yeah, <laughs> they cry after sex. <laughs> they cry after sex because they've given too much of themselves. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, tell me about those nights then. Tell so everyone's sitting around, yeah, everyone's yeah, yeah. eating, and it will be in front of the telly watching like. Cheers or something. Mm. You, you'd then like um, finish Cheers, finish the Indian, and then like Euro Trash would come on, and then <laughs> I love it. Yeah, yeah, Pippi and, and Popo, and yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, naked yeah. cleaners. Exactly, the naked cleaners and Lulu, yeah. the woman with Lulu. the massive boobs Miss, and everything. There is not one bit of that show uh, that they could show now. Not one bit, but it was so formative. It was to as many people's sexualities. <laughs> I mean, it really was absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me more about your family uh, living together back then. Yeah. Well, I grew up, I mean, my dad was by way of his job away a lot. So I grew up in a house of women, two sisters, my mum, obviously, 
and it gave me, uh, you know, I like, I, I like women, and I don't, I, I don't know if yeah. that, you know, I, I like being around women, and um, that's because being a middle boy and having an older sister, I, lo- I learned from an early age to defer to women. Mm. And so it's usually easier. It's much run. easier. Yeah, it works out better for everyone listening. I mean, my mum did all the cooking, mm. and she could cook. My mum. She grew up in the West Midlands, and so a lot of sort of mince and potatoes and uh, stews. My mum would cook a lot of brown food. Yeah, a lot of brown food. Yeah, yeah. But great, she's great, and you know, and um, so dinner uh, every night at the same time because you don't. My mum and dad. Now I grew up eating dinner at four o'clock. That's so early. Yeah, yeah, so early. And they still now, still now my mum and dad will have dinner at four o'clock. It's madness. Do they go to bed early? Not that early, not ridiculously so. No, they just have their dinner at four. But then do they have like a supper at about eight, which is like cream crackers and some cheese? They might have once upon a time, but now since my my, my mum and dad are now very health conscious, both my mum and dad have lost a great deal of weight. Mm. But no, they they eat their dinner very early. When you were given money to go out to school mm. for your lunch, mm. what did you spend it on? So, yeah, I was into food and I was um, I was always overweight as a kid. As long as I can remember, I was always the fat kid in my year. And uh, being a chubby kid at school was no fun. Um, so, yeah, they would, you'd get your lunch money. And there was a an upper crust concession in my school. I mean, what? what the living fuck? Yeah, yeah. What? Yeah. What an upper crust, what upper crust like you get at a station? Yeah. What the hell? It was a, it was a comprehensive school in South East London I'd... and there was a bloody upper crust in there. I don't know what was happening. It's almost like, did I dream that? They would, in my school, they would also. <laughs> they I don't would... even let myself Haberdasher... go. Right. If anyone is listening to this, who went to Haberdasher Asks in New Cross from 1994 to 2001, there was a bloody upper crust there. Wasn't there, guys, right? There was an upper crust there. I don't know whether it was some scheme, whether the person who was in charge of... I don't know what had happened, but there was an upper crust there. So hang on a minute. Yeah, yeah. Where was it? In it, the school? In the canteen. So you, so you know when you like get your little tray and queue up for your food, at the end of where you get your food, there was an upper crust. So it would say, <laughs> would you like some fish fingers and yeah, chips? Yeah. Or would you like... A 1,000 calorie yeah. cheese baguette. No, but it, the thing is, you would already be laden with your chips, gravy and fish fingers by the time you got to the <laughs> upper crust concession and it was an add-on. And also, I remember this other thing they did at school is they would try out products on us. They did this one thing called Bolt Cola, right? <laughs> and, and Bolt Cola was given to us for 50p a bottle, a massive bottle of this Bolt Cola, and it was twice the caffeine. <laughs> It was twice the caffeine of Coke, right? Coca-Cola. And we would smack, we were given this bulk cola. Yeah, yeah. And we all went nuts. This is delicious. But this is, guys, how about this bulk cola? This bulk cola is terrific, isn't it? Right? And then, I mean, again, if anyone was there, please, like, make me, you know, like, help, help me out on the fact that I'm not just imagining this. Bulk cola, the upper crust. So I would go... And for lunch, my favourite thing would be two spring rolls with chips and gravy. And then, yeah, yeah, delicious. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then a cheese and pickle baguette on top of it. 
But this would have been after morning break where I would have gone to the vending machine, which was filled with all manner of shit, uh, <laughs> which I would get um, Monster Munch, Snickers, and a Diet Coke. Then I'd have two periods. Then I'd go and get my lunch. And then I would come back from school and make myself my cheese and pickle sandwich. Then I'd have dinner. Yeah, yeah. So it was um, a lot of food. It feels like when you were a kid, you were really into food. Mm. It wasn't like you you weren't someone that they had to push Mm. to eat. Mm. You enjoyed it. Mm. So can you pinpoint a moment when you realised that food had the power to make you feel so incredibly good? Um, When I was uh, 14, my dad was diagnosed with leukaemia and... uh, it was uh, obviously terrible. And um, it was this thing whereby my mum didn't come pick me up from school one day. Mm. And um, she always did. And her friend picked me up and took me back to her house and my mum didn't come. And uh, my my mum came a few hours later and she was obviously very shaken because he just got the diagnosis. But she couldn't, because she just dealt with that, being told then that he had a serious form of leukemia. She didn't have it in her at that exact moment to tell us. So she uh, she said, your daddy's in, in hospital and um, he's got something wrong with his blood and he might be in for a while. We're going to go and see him tomorrow. So I had day of school. And um, we went to um, his hospital, UCL, Gower Street. His um, ward was PPW4. And um, hmm. we went in and... Uh, How old are you, sorry? 14. 14, and I, 14 and, years Yeah, old. yeah. And I saw my dad in a bed and there was a table in his room and on the table there was a pamphlet and on the front of it it said, dealing with leukaemia. And that was the first time I knew that my dad had leukaemia. And um, just the, the, the sound of the word leukaemia didn't sound good, does it? Hmm. And I was beside myself with panic. I was always a very sensitive, worrisome child. And uh, yeah, it knocked me for six. And so I uh, went home and I was inconsolable. And my um, sister, Pascal, my big sister, who was 17 at the time, I was lying on a sofa, very upset, crying. And she bought me in a milkshake that she'd made out of an Aero, Mm -hmm. an Aero milkshake. And uh, she gave it to me and it made me feel better. Made me feel better. And, uh, but if I think now of my sort of difficult relationship with food, it could perhaps be traced back to then because it just made me feel better. I was like, right, now I feel okay, I'm good to go. And ever since I've used food as celebration and commiseration, yeah. So you're still so young and your dad is in hospital yeah. and your mum is spending such a lot of time there with him. So did home life change then? Yeah. So my mum was, because he was in hospital more or less for 18 months. He had a very, very serious dose of this disease. My dad, who was this ebullient big man, he was only 39 at the time. So she's there with him all the time, getting the six courses of chemotherapy that he had. And so my grandma, Bet, 
my beloved grandmother, she moved in to care for us and cook for us. And so she was in charge of what we ate. What did she cook? She, well, it was all very wartime. So she would cook things that involved J-cloths <laughs> and not in a MasterChef lay your thing on a J-cloth, right? Yeah. Not in that way that you yeah. see that I like, that never gets mentioned on, on the MasterChef was when they let like they let a piece of meat rest on a J-cloth. Have you seen that? Yeah. Well, I was judging it yesterday and somebody didn't. Yeah. And if you don't, they brought in duck and it's just in a puddle of blood. Is that what it is? Yeah. You just let it sit for a bit. And if you don't do that, it looks like a crime scene. Oh, how interesting. Well, well, mm. Beth wasn't doing that. She was cooking suet puddings in J-cloths <gasps> that had definitely been used. Grace. <laughs> so she'd basically wiped down the surfaces oh, and yeah. made a like, you and know. And then put some a- sort of, put a load of suet and bacon in a, in a J-cloth and boiled it for a number of hours. Now, talking of bacon, whatever Bet cooked, whatever it was, if it was pasta, whatever, she would always do me three sizes of bacon on the side. <laughs> why? I don't know why. It's much like the upper crust concession in my school. I can't figure <laughs> out what the rationale behind it was. Because you're a growing boy. I was a growing boy. Yeah, you were a growing boy. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, I think that's true. And food is love. It is love, yeah. That was her version of that for definite. And especially someone who obviously loves food so much. That was her way of, you're right, giving that to me. And I was a a good audience for that and I and I loved it and but then I started getting terrible sort of heartburn and stuff I remember but then I started getting really big yeah so at this point when you're starting to get bigger mm. are you having to cope with the possibility that your dad will never come home yeah yeah I thought he was gonna die and we were told as much yeah mm. yeah yeah we were told as much my mum my had to tell us yeah that he's uh it's not looking good yeah and, you- and, and you know he, it would have been catastrophic it would have been a truly great loss. At around that point, you start acting at the National Youth Theatre. Yeah. That happens just the next year, around that point. Yeah, exactly. So did that change your life completely? Yeah, t- yeah totally. Yeah, it totally changed my life. Because, you know, in my school, people weren't into acting. There wasn't a, a drama department, really, and there, there wasn't really people who were in, into that. So I always felt like an outsider. So then... When I joined in the National Youth Theatre, I was like, my people, (laughs) here you are. (laughs) You're my own age and you exist. Thank God. Um, And I've I've never looked back. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. 
you've grown up, Rafe, and your acting career, I think, is like it's interstellar. You're doing so, so well. You started out with smaller parts mm. in Shaun of the Dead, mm. Hot Fuzz. Yeah which is constantly playing on ITV too. It is. They love it. I don't know what they do without it, to be honest. <laughs> and then you land in big roles in major blockbusters like The Big Short. Mm. The press have focused on your weight yeah. and how you are and how you are in this film and how you look now. Yeah. They've, they've focused on it in exactly the same way as they would when they're talking about women. Yeah. And that's, that's quite rare, I yeah. think. Some of the headlines when you read them, they, you know, they're uncomfortable because, like, I've well, I've seen the same things said about me. Yeah. <laughs> For your first leading role in I Give It a Year, somebody told me that you were, it was requested to lose five stone. Yeah. So, A, is that true? Or yeah. is that just, is that just a rumour? Yeah. And if so, tell me about the day that you were told that. <sighs> yeah. It's not entirely true that mm. I had to lose five stone because I was, um, so going back to when I was a child, all the big eating that I told you about got to the point that when I was 21, I embarked on a big voyage of weight loss. And so when it got to, I give it a year, which was my first lead part in a big sort of romantic comedy, it was made clear to me that I needed to lose weight in order to do the film. And so a trainer was laid on and I trained twice a day for 13 weeks to look like a normal guy, okay? And uh, as you just said, there was much in the public discourse about the terrible pressure that women are put under in the entertainment industry to um, live up to an unrealistic body shape. Now the same is for men. It, it isn't just me, it's all men. And I don't know who it's for on both sides. I don't know who it's for and I'm sick of it. And uh, the fact is, is in that film, which I'm really proud of. I love that film. I had to do all of that to just look like a normal person in whoever's idea of a normal person is. It wasn't like I was playing a superhero or whatever, just playing a normal guy. And uh, it's just worth saying, you know, is when you, when you see films with men with their shirts off, my entire life and existence for, for four months was based around the way that I looked. Mm. Right. And I, starve myself mm. to look like that, essentially. Now, I'm not naturally blessed with the sort of body that with low body fat that look, looks like that. Well, I have to work my ass off, yeah? Some people are, good for them. Mm. Most people aren't. I can't really say good for them. No, I no, no. I can't say it with any, no, any, any, any truth. <laughs> <laughs> um, so m most people aren't, and, you have, and I have to flog myself to do that. And I think it's harmful. I think mm. it's harmful for me. I think it's harmful for the audience. I think it's harmful for everyone. And it's not even like I'm saying this from a point of view of going, I figured it out now. Listen, I'm just going to eat what I want and do what I want and appear in films as however, you know, because I'm not there yet. I'm still having to go, oh, Jesus, I've got a part coming up. I better get in shape. I better start restricting my eating, blah, blah, blah. I'm still doing it because I'm so conditioned to do it. Do you have a date in your diary right now that you need to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got four things coming up ahead of me. One of them I've got to get my clothes off and I'm like, thinking about food all the time. But Grace, I've spent most of my adult life thinking about food. As I said earlier, I love food. It's a, an axiom of the human experience for me. I get a deep enjoyment and sensuality from food. It's part mm. of my identity. But I think about my weight all the time. 
when you first, you know, the first 14 pounds come off your training yeah. and then another 14 pounds come yeah. off, people start treating you differently. They do. The whole world treated me differently. The whole world did. My industry, my job, women, I was getting parts that I wouldn't normally get. It was like I turned this light on around me and suddenly people were like, oh, there you are now, right? And so then you're going, okay, this is my, this is obviously a big part of my currency is, is that I'm now thinner. So therefore people are more interested. But then the pressure is to keep it off. And if you don't keep it off and then if you go, you know, cause I, I'm very much a sort of, I'll be very strict for four months and then I'll just go, fuck it. I'm just going to eat whatever I want. I completely empathize with what you're saying. Every single thing you're saying, I agree with, and I feel the same. <laughs> so we're on the same mm. sheet. It's, it's just not, it's nice to talk about like this, you know, because mm. I, I haven't really talked about it in this way because I, I won't tell you what job it was, yeah? But I, and the people involved in this will know if they listen to this, they'll know who they are, yeah? I did a job, big profile thing for the telly. And I went to the read-through looking like I am now, right? I've got 34-inch mm. waist. I, I, I'm, yeah. um, you know, I exercise, all those sorts of things, yeah? And I got back from that. And I got a phone call from my agent saying, uh, Rafe, we just had blah, blah on the phone. And um, they wonder uh, if you've been looking after yourself recently. <sighs> I said, what do you mean? They said, they're a bit concerned that you're looking a bit overweight, mate. And um, they would love it if they could get you a trainer. Now, I was fit at this time. Yeah, I was fit. I was mm -hmm. like, I could run flipping 5K in 20 minutes, right? And I was strong and fit. And it broke my heart, mm -hmm. yeah? yeah? It literally was my, my worst nightmare coming true. And I know this daft because people have got other things to worry about. But I hope me saying this that people can identify with it. Because as I said, men don't mm -hmm. talk about this often, right? Mm -hmm. It broke my heart. So much so that like... I literally, I kicked up a big fuss. Yeah, I was like, I'm. If you want to play this game, like, how about I write a nice little article about this? <laughs> and it scared the the life out of them, right? Yeah. And they took it all back. But still, I was like, what are you talking about? And but even though I was like wanting to kick up a fuss about it, I still flipping starved myself for of the next thirteen did. weeks. And then did I did. You feel, did you feel happier? I didn't feel happier in any way. But you know what else is worth pointing out is that whenever I'm like doing a film or whatever and feeling like I'm basing my whole identity around my body weight, I watch it five years later and I go, what was I worried about? You look all right. It's like when you see old pictures of yourself, right? You go, what were you worried about then? You just look back and go, look how yeah. beautiful yeah, I Yeah, you look lovely. You look lovely. Or yeah. at the time you feel terrible. And I would love so much to be free of that. And I don't know what to do about it. I've been to therapy, obviously, you know, there are things in play and I've tried to address it and I've seen many nutritionists over the years and it really pisses me off because I love food. I love it. I love it. I'm going to talk to you about your wife, Elise Dutois. That is such a beautiful mm. name. Is Izzy from Hollyoaks? She was Izzy in Hollyoaks, yeah. You always speak about her in such a lovely loving way you met her in 2008 on a blind date how did that work hang on a minute blind date you must have known who it was a little yeah i know bit. exactly who she was because she was on the front cover of loaded i mean that helps doesn't when it I, when i was 18 and she's I, so gorgeous she's gorgeous she's a knockout and i remember i'd been out with one of my dear friends dean 
getting really drunk. And my <laughs> mate Rafe called me and said, I'm with Elise now, will I bring her? I said, yeah, bring her. And then she came in and uh, I'm sat there and I can remember it. I can see it now very clearly. She had a gold top on. She had this look on her face, which is, I can't even describe. And then we uh, we met and, um, yeah, we've been together since that minute, which is um, nearly 13 years ago. You got married after two years. Yeah. I was 27 when I got married. And then you have your first child. So you start having children early like your dad. Very quite similar, yeah. Yeah, go figure, yeah. Did you always want to be a husband and a dad? Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, Why? I don't know. I suppose I wanted to create my own family very quickly. I never questioned it. Elise and I never questioned it. We just had our first kid very quickly, conceived on honeymoon. and uh, That's a shock, though. Yeah, well, it wasn't really. It was just terrific. It was like, wow, brilliant. But now, you know, I was 24 when I met her, yeah? I mean, that's... I've had my entire adult life of her. She's extremely bright, intelligent, and most importantly, find the same things funny, which is really the only thing that sustains, isn't it? Well, if you haven't got that, because life is a hell of a lot of sitting about on the sofa, just taking the mick out of each other. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And... um we still have a laugh. So you've got three children together and you're living out in the Cotswolds. Yeah. So you and your parents, your family, you had this Friday night curry tradition. Yeah. So what happens now uh, for comfort food mm. with your family? Have you got any rituals mm. or anything yeah, that you so do? Yeah, so on a Sunday I'll do chicken and chips. Interesting. Roast, roast chicken with proper chips, deep fat fried chips. Tell me about your chicken technique. This is a, well, it's, I, it's, it's different, and it it depends. Fail safe is you put half a lemon up its bum. What do you do with the other half then? It's one of those things where you guys should keep this, and it just sits in the fridge. I always slice up the other half and then put the chicken sat on top of the lemon on a sort of trivet. Yeah, um, a lemon throne, if yeah, you will. A lemon throne. Very good. Do you put butter onto the? I skin? I put butter under the skin and on the skin. Oh. And then I'll put a copious amount of salt and pepper on it. If I'm feeling um, frisky, I'll put induya all over the bird. It all runs and makes a nice fatty sauce. But that's Um, also because you have grown up on spice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now you want the spice and the kind of comfort food of the gravy. Exactly. Induya is terrific. Put it in everything. It's lovely, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's one of those foods that, I mean, you know all about it. It's one of those trends, foods that just appear. Yeah. And And then it's flipping everywhere. Tell me about the chips. Have you got a chip technique? Yeah, I do, yeah. So I'd cut them up thin, which is laborious, but worth it. I'll wash all the starch off them as much as I can. Then I'll dry them all off on a tea towel. Then I'll put them in the fat fire once, just to, when I put the chicken in. Halfway through, I do them again. And then just as the chicken's finished resting, I'll put them in again. What's it like sitting around the table now with your own family? What is that feeling? Yeah, it's a thing. It's a real thing. It's a... Uh... My kids are usually just driving me nuts because they're not eating or they're, or they're pushing things around or they're making obnoxious demands because <laughs> so mm-hmm. they're, they're still in that age, you know, but it's, it's lovely. I suppose now when I'm sat around my own kitchen table on a Sunday with my chicken and chips or whatever and I've got my own kids, my three children, and I see them 
enjoying food, having a great love for food. I, one of the things that I'm so, so keen on is is that they have a healthy relationship with food, right? Is that they have no issues with it. And that's a real thing for me because that's extremely important to me. Because there's this whole culture, isn't there? Of We were always brought up with like, finish everything on your plate. You're not leaving the table until you finish every single thing on your plate. And I don't know if that's entirely healthy. I don't know. I haven't got the answers, but we'll see. Revs, well, thank you so much for comfort eating with me. Such a pleasure. I've loved it. This episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Gabriella Jones. The series producer is Leia Green and the executive producer is Cathy Drysdale. Music and sound design is by Axel Kakutier. If you like this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review. You can subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. This is The Guardian. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today, we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.